Thank you, Ken. That was a good uh, report on the orchestra going to Brazil. Uh, this year, the Criswell College is be sending a, a group of students, probably about 20 students, to Brazil on a mission trip. And uh, Larry Walker is going to be leading that trip, uh, along with Lanny Elmore. So uh, that's going to be a good trip for our students. They're going to learn how to do evangelism in uh, South America. So uh, many of our trips are led by professors. No, professors don't know how to do evangelism. Uh, all they know how to do is talk about evangelism, you know? Even professors of evangelism know how to just talk about evangelism. These guys are men who gave their lives to missions and evangelism, so we're very fortunate to have our students uh, going with them this year. Pastor will be back this coming Sunday. Uh, he wants you to stump him. Boyd and I were just talking about stump the pastor. We came to the conclusion if he really wanted to be stumped, he should just take questions spontaneously. <laughs> Boyd had a question that no one could answer. Boyd said, I got this question. I said, what is it? He told me, no one can answer the question that Boyd uh, presented. So he's going to put it on the slip, but you know what's going to happen? He's not going to choose that question. <laughs> the pastor has, has uh, put together a game where he wins. <laughs> In other words, it's fixed. So anyway. Yeah, cheat, cheat. Okay. Anyway. I would never have a stump the pastor night. <laughs> because uh, someone would cheat and uh, stand up and ask the question spontaneously. And then you'd be put on the spot and then you would look foolish. <laughs> I would never do that. Okay. Anyway, we're in uh, Luke chapter 11. So take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 11. And we're going to finish this section today. In the last couple of weeks, we've discovered how Jesus responds openly to his critics. He has performed a miracle, and different groups have responded or have reacted to the miracle, and Jesus has now answered them openly. This week, we're going to discover how Jesus responds privately to two different groups. Okay? So the last couple of weeks, he responded openly to the crowds. This week, he has a couple private conversations where he has critics, and we're going to see how he does that. The first group that he responds to are the Pharisees, and we are in Luke chapter 11, and his response to the Pharisees is found in verses 37 through 44. 37 through 44. Then he will respond to the lawyers, and his response to the lawyers is found in verses 45 through 52. Now, these responses have two things in common. First, each has a set of woes. We've dealt with woes before, but look how he condemns the Pharisees in verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees. Notice that word, uh, that condemnation is followed by the word for. Woe to you, Pharisees, for or because. And he gives the reason why he condemns the Pharisees. Look at verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees. And again, notice, for. He gives the reason. Look at verse 44. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Four. So we have three woes toward the Pharisees. Three judgments. Then he comes to the lawyers in verse 46, and notice what he says. Woe to you, lawyers. Four. See that? Verse 47. Woe to you. And then he explains why. Four. And then he has one more woe down in verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers. Four. 
And then verses 53 and 54, notice they're in black letters, and this is the result of the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees and the lawyers. Does that make sense? That's how we're going to lay it out. So let's first of all look at Jesus and the Pharisees. Now look at verse 37. It says, And as he spoke, as he was speaking, a certain Pharisee asked him, to dine with him. Now that phrase, as he spoke, refers back to Jesus' conversation last week with those who were asking him for a sign. Remember that? They said, well, if you really are a miracle worker, let's see a sign. We want you to prove it. And they were testing him. So as he was in that conversation with the sign seekers, evidently this crowd gathers around, and one within the crowd is a Pharisee, and this man says, uh, breaks into the conversation, and he says, why don't you come to my house for lunch or for dinner? So the fact that he brings Jesus to his house for a meal indicates uh, a sense of openness. And maybe he's trying even to rescue Jesus from the crowd. We don't actually know. But anyway, he invites Jesus to his house for dinner. And verse 37 says, So he went in, Jesus went in, and sat down. <clears throat> And uh, Luke wants us to understand by that phrase, Jesus went and sat down, means that he went in and sat down without following protocol. Because you just didn't go into someone's house and just sit down and eat at their table. If I invited you to my house and you came to my house this afternoon, you would come in and you would probably stand and wait for a moment just to see what I would say. But why don't you take a seat here on the sofa or something? You would uh, let me lead the way because you're in my house. Jesus just comes down and he sits down at the table. He reclines at the table. Doesn't follow protocol. What should he have done? Well, we find that out in verse 38. When the Pharisees saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Now, uh, this is referring to ritual washing. Uh, this, isn't, this has nothing to do with washing your hands before a meal. The Jews wash their hands as a ritual. And this ritual was to show that they were uh, law-observing Jews. They were good Jews. They observed the law. And to do that, that's what you did. It's just like if a Roman Catholic would go into a church this morning, and many have all around this city and around the world, when they go into the auditorium, they go, something. They cross themselves. What does that mean? That means I'm Roman Catholic. If I go into their church, guess what I'll do? I'll go and sit down. <laughs> now, what does that do? That says, I'm not a practicing Roman Catholic. See? But that's what they would, and they'd see me, and they go, did you see that? <laughs> They're offended by that. Or you go to a Jewish funeral. What do you put on your head if you're a man? Your armica. You put that on. I've seen President Clinton, when he went to a Jewish funeral, he had the yarmulke on his head. Well, why did he have that? Because that's protocol. He didn't want to offend. How about if he went in, and I've gone to many Jewish funerals, how about if I would go in, and I didn't put it on, I just sat down? <gasps> See, I would have offended the people in that building. I would have offended my host. And Jesus, by not washing his hands, offends his host. He doesn't follow <laughs> protocol. See? So uh, that's an insult. He is not accepting their hospitality in the way it should be accepted. 
and he's not following the, the laws of ritual purity. Now look at verse 39. That's what it says. Then the Lord said to him, <clears throat> see the guy just went, <gasps> he may have said that inside even. And then the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees, uh, make the outside of the cup and the dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Now, Jesus immediately takes the bull by the horns. He doesn't even allow the guy to say something. He knows immediately what the guy's thinking. And so Jesus said, you know, you're always concerned about, ah, don't get offended by this. You're just concerned about the outward. You know, God really is concerned about inward purity. Amen. See, now that's what Jesus does. So he, he sort of turns the tables on the Pharisee. And the key word in verse 39 is toward the end of the sentence. And it's the word full. You see that? But your inward part, see, you're outwardly, you're ritually clean, but inwardly, your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Now, why is that word full the most important word? Because it refers back to a conversation Jesus had last week at the end of verse 34. Remember where Jesus talked about a person's eye was a window into the soul? And look what he says at the end of verse 34. But when your eye is bad... Your body is what? Full of darkness. So now you see how this conversation links to last week's. And he says, inwardly, you are full of darkness. Well, what does it mean to be full of darkness? Well, it tells us at the end of verse 39, you're full of what? Greed and wickedness. So if you want to know what darkness is, it's things like that. It's uh, doing the wrong thing and uh, having the wrong... Attitude and the wrong motives. And you can't have a pure heart if you have a greedy heart. You can't have a pure heart if outwardly you are doing things that are unrighteous. And you can even do righteous things outwardly, believe it or not, and still not have a pure heart. You can appear to have a pure heart, but in reality you do not have a pure heart because you are a hypocrite. And that's why the word Pharisee and hypocrite have always been linked together in Scripture and in our understanding of culture. So he's basically saying you're full of darkness. You're full of greed and foolishness. Now, or, or greed and wickedness. Now, verse 40, he says this. Foolish ones. Or to put it in another way, you fools. Or to put it in even a more... Rusque way, you idiots. Uh, you ignoramuses. That's probably a better word. You, it, because if you're foolish, you're sort of an ignoramus. You claim to have truth, but you're ignorant of truth. You ignoramuses did, watch, verse 40, did not he, that's God, who made the outside also make the inside, and the answer is what? Yes. yes. And guess what? All you're concerned with is the outside. Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? Yes. But you are ignoramuses because darkness fills you. You don't know the truth. You don't understand things. You haven't even considered that God made the inside. That's why you're so foolish, you see. Now look what he says in verse 41. 
But rather, here's what you should do. You should give alms of such things as you have. <clears throat> gives them an instruction. Here's what I think you really need to do. Give things away. Now, that takes care of the greed, doesn't it? You see, if you give things away, that shows that you don't have greed in your heart. That shows that you're not full of darkness, but you're full of light. So, what you do on the outside, some of the things that you do on the outside, like giving things away, give alms to people who are needy, is an indication that there's no greed in your heart. So that takes care of the greed. And you're doing something that's right. Therefore, what you're doing is not wicked. So that is what Jesus is doing. He's countering this darkness that is in them. Now, if you give alms to the poor, because that's who alms are given to, then what is yours is theirs, and you're not putting a barrier between you. You see, the... the Pharisees and these very religious Jews would wash their hands, do this ritual cleansing, to say that we're good Jews. We practice our religion. But look at that poor slob down there on the corner begging. He doesn't even know the law. And it puts a barrier between you. And what Christ wants to do is he wants to break that barrier down. And one of the ways you break the barrier down is you give what is yours to somebody else. And suddenly, the barriers are broken down. So there should be no barriers between the elites, the people who have, and the needy. And uh, we must realize that the needy were created by God just like we were. And we're all part of the human family. And therefore, when we ask the question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer should be what? Yes. Yes. So this is what Jesus is trying to say. So our conduct and our character go hand in hand. And what Jesus is doing, he's redefining purity. They defined it as washing. Keeping rituals. Going through the motions. Jesus said, that's outward. Didn't God make the inward? Yes. And your inward isn't pure. You're full of darkness. You're full of greed. The only way you can get rid of that is to give alms to the poor. At least that's one of the ways you can do it. So your disposition toward your possessions speaks of your disposition, the disposition of the heart. Uh, I just got finished watching the, uh, the John Adams series that came out on DVD. Some of you saw that. And uh, the thing, the tragedy of the story is that he has this one son named Charles. And he just doesn't, they're just, they're just like night and day. They just don't get along. They're like cats and dogs. And he never, never embraces this one child, Charles. Uh, the apple of his eye is John Quincy. And he'll do anything for John Quincy. And Quincy will do anything to please his father. And he's got another son, Thomas, who lives with John Adams and his wife and takes care of them. Never gets married. But the one son, Charles, his own flesh and blood, he just can't relate to that kid. And he really doesn't meet this kid's needs. In fact, he says, I denounce you at one point in the show, in the movie. He says, I denounce you. He denounces his own flesh and blood. Can you imagine that? 
That's something we should have. God, who created us, said, I denounce you. That would just wipe away all hope. And that's what he does. And see, that's what the Pharisees do. These are kinds of people, when they see somebody hurting, they cross the road and go on their way. Remember, that was the story of the, product, of, of the uh, Good Samaritan. So, Jesus is now basically saying, this is what you do, and you need to give alms to the poor. He's giving them an opportunity to do it. There's no indication that they ever do it. So, this leads us to woe number one. Look at verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees. And that word woe means condemnation or judgment upon you Pharisees. Why? Here's the reason. For you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs. In other words, you give to the church. You uh, give to the temple. You bring your tithes to the temple, to the storehouse. And the Levites and the priests would uh, store up all these, uh, these commodities that were given. But here is a person that's needy right next to you. You don't even lift your hand to help that person. So there's a woe. Now, they go way beyond even what the law requires. They tie their mint. They, they tie their rouge. They, they tie their herbs. So outwardly, it looks like they are living an exemplary life. But uh, they're really not. That's all outward, you see. That's outward. And then look what he says. Verse 42. And you buy, pass, or you pass by justice. And you pass by the love of God. So you do all these outward things. And you actually tithe to the temple. that has accumulated millions and is doing nothing with it. And here's a needy person, or here's a person that needs justice, and you ignore that. You don't do what's right. See? And <coughs> therefore you don't, you bypass the love of God. Because how can you say you love God whom you have not seen when you don't love your fellow man whom you have seen? So the important thing they bypass, and the unimportant things, the outward things, they embrace. Now, there's nothing wrong with tithing. I believe in tithing. I tithe. So that means, if you know what my salary was, you know that at least how much I give, because I tithe, and that tithe means a tenth. There's nothing wrong with tithing, and there's nothing wrong like these people actually going beyond the tithe. That's a good thing. But it's not the only thing. Lost people can tithe. I know lost people who start foundations. You ever watch PBS? This foundation and that foundation, they've given millions. The owners of Microsoft have given billions. That's great. But that's not what God requires. God requires that you look down upon the needy and you reach down and you embrace them. You don't separate from them. If you do, he pronounces a woe upon you. Now look at the second woe. Verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love... Now here's what you love. 
They should have loved God and done what he said. But here's what they love. You love the best seats in the synagogue. You love a life of privilege. You think it's owed to you. You want the best seats in the synagogue. So here they have uh, a sense of self-importance. That means I deserve that. That's a sense of self-importance. You don't deserve anything. But that's a sense of self-importance. And in verse 43, look what else you love. You love the greetings in the marketplaces. This is, a self, this is not only recognition of self, you want to be recognized. See, that's what it basically is, public recognition. You want to be the center of attention. So you think that you deserve certain things, and you want to be the center of attention. Public recognition. Self-centeredness. Consumed with self. It's all about me. How about this needy person? No, it's about me. Don't talk about that person. The poor you'll have with you always, you know. And that's true. And there's a reason you'll have them with you always. God wants to see what you'll always do. So they want to be recognized publicly. Now here is the very interesting irony, and it comes with woe number three. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now some translations just say Pharisees, and some translations add scribes. It doesn't really matter. But he says you're a hypocrite. Now watch this. Because you are like graves which are not seen. You're like graves which are not seen. Now this is the amazing, this is the irony. They want to be seen. They want to be greeted in the market. Hey Rabbi, how you doing? Dr. So-and-so, how you doing? Oh, there he is. And you really like that. You want the public recognition. You know what you really like? Here's what you're like. You're like a grave that's overgrown. And when a grave's overgrown, guess what? It can't be seen. At the end of verse 44, he says, And men walk over them, over the graves, and are not even aware of them. I've been to cemeteries that have overgrown, and I walked and I stepped on a grave. Oh, didn't even see that. So this is what happens. Now, this is a hard saying for me because I'm not sure exactly all that it means, but I see the irony is that these people want to be the center of attention, and guess what? They're nobodies, at least in God's eyes. In people's eyes, they might be somebodies, but in God's eyes, they're nobodies, and they're like graves. Now, isn't that interesting that he uses the word graves? Because what's this whole stuff about? It's about ritual purity. Washing your hands and being pure, and guess what he says? You're not pure, you're like a grave. You can't get any more impure than that. In fact, any Jew that even came close to a grave or death remained impure for seven days. And that had to go through all kinds of risks. He said your whole life is like a grave. In other words, you say you're interested in being pure, you are totally impure. You're impure from the inside out. And you want the center of attention, you're actually a nobody. 
at least in the eyes of God. Does that make sense? Okay, now we come to Jesus and the lawyers. Now, one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Now, it's interesting that there are lawyers at this dinner, and there are Pharisees. We didn't know that before. So, it's not like the guy just invited Jesus to dinner. He invited Jesus to a dinner, but he had a whole bunch of other friends. And they were important friends. You know, there are Pharisees there. There are only 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Jesus throughout the entire nation of Israel. It's a very small group of people. And the lawyers were the interpreters of the law. These are not like attorneys today. I don't know how to describe what a lawyer is like in Bible times, except to say uh, a lawyer was not a minister, but he was the interpreter of the law. He interpreted Old Testament scripture. He was like a theology professor today, who knows the Bible, but is not ministering in a church. So that's what a lawyer was, an expert. Stump the lawyer, in other words. <clears throat> Not stump the pastor, he wasn't a pastor. And these lawyers couldn't be stumped, because they were so-called, everybody looked to the lawyers to interpret the Old Testament law. So what happens is that one of the lawyers in verse 45, 45 answered and said to Jesus, Teacher, by saying these three things that you've just said, you reproach us also, uh, we side with the Pharisees on this matter, and we agree with their interpretation of the law, not your interpretation. So the lawyers side with the Pharisees. So Jesus has offended them, that's what they're saying, okay? And the lawyers have the last word on the matter, and that's just said, okay, we've said it, now that's it, you're wrong, they're right, okay? So Jesus says, oh, is that right? Well, then I guess I should say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mr. Lawyer. Is that what he says? I'm sorry? Let's see what he said. He says, verse 46, Woe to you, lawyers! Why? Here's why I'm going to say condemnation upon you. For you load men with burdens hard to bear. You load men with burdens hard to bear. Uh, the lawyers interpreted the law. The law's not the culprit. God gave the law. Paul says the law is good. But what they've done is they've added to the law. And so if it said tithe, the lawyer said, now let me tell you what that means. And boy, they would just add and add and add. Oh, keep the Sabbath? Let me tell you what that means. You can't walk within 300 yards of your house to the synagogue. Let me tell you what this means. And they just kept adding and adding and adding. And they kept burdening people with their tradition. They embellished the law, in a sense. And then he says this at the end of verse 46, And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one finger. In other words, and you don't even lift a finger to help. You put all the weight on them, and you don't even say, Hey, let me help you carry that a little bit. You just stand back and laugh. As the people are weighted down. Or the law. You do nothing. You don't provide a solution and tell them how to, how to do it now that you've heard to them. Just the opposite of Jesus. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and are what? Heavy laden. You know what I'll do? I'll give you rest. I'll lift that burden. Put it on my shoulders. I'll give you rest. 
See, that's why they're... Notice the difference. It's the same thing with the Pharisees. Concerned about keeping the law, but not really helping anybody to keep the law. Just the opposite of Jesus. That's woe number one. Now look at verse 47. Woe to you! Okay, why? This is a good one. Woe to you because you build the tombs of the prophets. That means you build memorials to the prophets. You, uh, you build uh, like a the tomb of the unknown soldiers. Here's a guy who's given his life and you build a, a memorial to honor him. Now there's nothing wrong with that, is it? To honor the dead? Now in this case, it's people who were spokesmen for God, prophets. You uh, build memorials to the prophets. That's not a bad thing. That's a pretty good thing. But then look what he says. And your fathers killed them. And your fathers killed them. <clears throat> now, what this indicates, first of all, you know what a prophet is. He's a person that speaks for God, a truth teller. And all the Old Testament prophets came along and they told the truth. And guess what people did to them? Killed them. Killed them. The forefathers, their fathers, killed the prophets. Killed the prophets. Killed the prophets. Killed the prophets. Now this generation comes along and says, we're going to honor the prophets. We're going to build a memorial to Jeremiah. We're going to build a memorial to Ezekiel. We're going to build a memorial to Isaiah. That's a good thing, isn't it? you would realize that your fathers did something that was wrong. Now, if the discussion ended right there at verse 47, what they would have done would have been great. That would been an honorable thing. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 48. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers. Look at this. You bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers. For they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Now that still sounds pretty good. But look at verse 49. Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them, the tomb builders, prophets and apostles, and some of them, they will kill and Persecute. So, now you see the hypocrisy. Here's what's happened. Their fathers killed the Old Testament prophets. They built tombs honoring the Old Testament prophets. That's good, but then guess what happened? God sends the tomb builders, the memorial builders, a group of prophets. And guess what they do? He sends John the Baptist. And guess what they do? Kill John the Baptist. Just like their dads did. And he sends them Jesus. And guess what they're going to do to him? Kill him. Just like their forefathers did. So they're hypocrites. On the one hand, they honor the Old Testament prophets whom their fathers killed. On the other hand, they kill prophets, their contemporary prophets themselves. So this is hypocrisy. Does that make sense? They spurned the revelation of God for their day. And we do that sometimes. We honor the Old Testament prophets. We honor God's spokesmen in Scripture. We honor the great men of the past, Dwight L. Moody and Spurgeon and Criswell and Billy Graham and all the people who... And then, the Word of God speaks to us. 
God sends someone to preach his word to us. And we spurn them. And we condemn them. And we persecute them. Well then, we are in danger of judgment. Woe to you who do that. Does that make sense? This is uh, very important. <clears throat> and then he says this. This is a purpose statement. So you end up killing and persecuting. Then verse 50 he says, this is the, the effect that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple, yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Now, not only does he say you're doing the same thing as your, as your fathers did, but guess what he says? Now, as a result of you being the hypocrite and persecuting prophets today, God holds you responsible for the death of every prophet, from Adam all the way up to Zechariah. In other words, all the judgment he's calling on each neck, on the next generation, on the next generation, on the next generation. And if we do what these people are doing, then the judgment from all the persecution and the murder and the assassination of prophets is on our shoulders as well. For example, let's say that your father was a racist. Let's say your father was James Earl Ray. Okay? And James Earl Ray assassinates Martin Luther King. And you grow up and realize, hey, that's a horrible thing. So you sponsor in your town uh, a fundraising drive to have a memorial to Martin Luther King. You honor him. You build a memorial to him. But then something happens in your neighborhood regarding civil rights. Maybe it's not with African Americans. Maybe it's with a different group. But something happens in your neighborhood regarding civil rights, and guess what you do? You oppose the civil rights. You persecute those people. Then, what Jesus says, well, in that case, you don't get any credit for building the Martin Luther King Memorial. In fact, his death, the responsibility for his death is on your shoulders as well. Man, that's hard teaching, isn't it? This is Jesus. This is nothing I would ever come up with. I couldn't come up with this scheme if you had given me a million dollars. But this is the teaching of Jesus. So as a result, all of that is put upon your shoulders. And so we have to be very careful. This is why I have a great deal of respect for Dr. Richard Land. Because what Dr. Land did a few years ago against the objections of 90% of the Southern Baptists around the world, he said, I, as the director of the Ethics Commission, of the Southern Baptist Convention, I am making a resolution that Southern Baptists today say we are sorry for our part in slavery. And we ask the African American community to forgive us. Boy, did he get it for that. But let me tell you, that's what has to be done. And then, once that's done, then we need to make sure that we're never involved in that kind of stuff again and we always stand for righteousness. Now, Jesus applied it to prophets. I applied it to the civil rights movement just so you, as an example. Now, whose death does Jesus say they will be responsible for in verse 51? The blood of Abel, 
all the way up to the blood of Zechariah. Abel was killed by Cain. Okay, and Zechariah was the last prophet mentioned here to be put to death. Now why does he say from Abel to Zechariah? Why does he end with Zechariah? Why does he come all the way up to the book of Malachi or something? Now this is where it gets very interesting. In our Old Testament, our English Old Testament, the last book in our English Old Testament is the book of Malachi. But in the Hebrew Old Testament, the way the old-time Jews structured their Old Testament, the last book was Second Chronicles, which is the story of Zechariah and his death. It ends with the chapter right before the end of Second Chronicles. And so Jesus is applying this illustration to the Old Testament text as it was arranged in the Hebrew canon of Scripture. Does that make sense to you? Now look at verse 52. Here's what he says. Woe number three. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. That's truth. You've taken it away from people. And what you did was put a burden on them instead. And... You did not enter in yourselves. You didn't enter into knowledge yourself. And those who were entering in, you hindered. And this goes right back again to verse 34. That they too are full of darkness. They are full of darkness and therefore they do not have knowledge. That's what he's saying here. They, uh, they've taken away the key of knowledge and therefore they are in darkness or either ignorance or because they want to hold their truth instead of God's truth. And as a result, they have hindered others from entering in. And those who were entering in, they stopped them. So here we have the three woes in each group and the reasons. Now, we see the results. Here's what Luke says. Look at verse 53. And as he said these things to them, some translation says... As he went out. In fact, if you look at verse 37, at the end of verse 37, end of verse 37 says, He went in and sat down. In verse 53, some translation says, And he went out. Whose translation says that? He went out. Some of yours, that's a New American Standard translation. But the New King James says, And as he said these things, meaning after he said these things and he went out, here's what happened. The scribes and the Pharisees began to what? Yeah, they began to assail him vehemently. Oh, notice they're doing exactly what he said they would do. They're persecuting the prophets. Now, you would think after he just said this, the one thing they would do is say, let's don't talk about this guy at least for ten minutes. <laughs> No, they can't do that. You know why? Because that's how they are on the inside. <laughs> and it comes out. So uh, they began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things. Well, if that's the case, you know, what about this? And then look how they did it. Verse 54. Lying in wait for him. 
and seeking to catch him in something that he might say that they might accuse him, spying on him and trying to catch him in something that he says. Wrong. Sounds like a political campaign, doesn't it? Exactly. Just hunting for him, spying on the candidate, hoping he says one thing wrong. Ah, gotcha! And uh, they will continue to lie in wait, and guess what? He never says anything that's wrong that they can judge him of, and so finally they say, well, we only have one solution. We need to get rid of him. We need to kill him. Just showing Indeed, they are under the will of God. Now, let me give you some lessons. First of all, realize that when God pronounces a woe upon people, when he condemns people, he does it in order to bring them to repentance. See, uh, Christ came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But we're already condemned, aren't we? Right now, the condemnation rest upon us, but that is to bring us to Christ so that we will repent. We have no evidence that uh, these people have repented. Maybe God's spoken to you today and you realize, hey, in light of my, in light of this passage, my life doesn't fit. Well, then God's saying, okay, you're condemned, but you have an opportunity to change. Just do what it says. <laughs> Just do what it says. Just do it. Repent. Change. Make an about face. So God speaks to us and he pronounces the condemnation, just as Jonah, when he went through, said, in 40 days God will judge. But guess what? Even though he pronounced judgment, God stayed his hand of judgment because they repented. So this call of condemnation is a call to repent. Okay, second of all, through this, I think we learned that we must not major on minors. We shouldn't major on the minor things. Oftentimes we major on the outward things to make us look good, the way we look. And we need to major on the majors, which are taking care of the needy and loving God. Being God's hand extended to those people out there who are needy. Number two, it's very important that we don't seek attention or think of ourselves more than we ought. We should not seek attention for ourselves, but our attention should go outward to others. See, that's what Jesus says. Instead of uh, raising ourselves up and wanting to be on the high platforms where everyone sees us, we should be raising other people up. That's our goal in life, is to get other people up so they're even with us. We don't want to keep people down by raising ourselves up. Let's raise them up so the barriers are gone. Okay? Next. It's important that we don't overburden people with things that the scripture doesn't overburden people with. Hey, we really do this in Baptist church. We deal with non-essentials and we put burdens on people that we shouldn't be putting burdens on. Instead, what we should be doing is giving them a helping hand. Instead of putting burdens on them, we should say, put the burden on me for a while. I'll give you the rest. Okay? Next. It's important that we don't repeat the sins of our fathers. And in doing so, being blinded by it, by also building memorials to people of the past. We need to reverse the sins of our fathers and make sure they never happen again in our generation. It's very important for those of us who are Christians to do that. And finally, we need to be open to correction. 
this wasn't told to condemn these people. It was to correct these people. And when Luke includes this story of Jesus' meal at the Pharisee's house, remember he's writing this in around 55 or 60, AD, 30-some years after the events happened. He's writing it to a church, just like our church. And he's doing it so the lessons will apply to us. So that we, too, just like the Pharisees and the lawyers heard the word of Christ, that we, too, will hear the word of Christ and obey. So let's get at it. Let's all get at it. Let's always be at it. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. May we indeed uh, take this important word and apply it to our own situations. We all know where we are in our own lives and, and applying uh, the love, your love, the love of God to other people. There's so many ways we can do it. Lord, if we just start today and do it in one way, we will be on the journey of recovery and, and change. Lord, help us to honor Jesus Christ by living a life that, uh, uh, that's patterned after his. And may people see the love of Christ in us because of it. Thank you for that testimony where people in Brazil saw the love of Christ in the demeanor of our members. Lord, that's what we want. We want to reach out and touch people for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.